Matt Walsh goes on an epic rant against nice conservatism. Is his rant merely a sign of the degradation of our times that we just can't get along, or does he actually have a point? I can tell you this much. Right under our noses, we need to pay attention to what's happening in society, like a recent interview on Vice where a bunch of women gathered together to talk about feminism. But there's a fox in the hen house. We'll look at that. And then we'll look at Marriott, who is fighting back against one of the greatest evils of our age, sex trafficking. And then we'll look at a brand new podcast series about J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series. Oddly enough, the podcast author wants to pinpoint Christians as one of the big troublemakers in the culture wars. But uh, rather, I think we all know that the intolerant book-burning death threat makers are those in the trans community who came after Rowling. So those poor marginalized, hormonally deficient people, they just can't catch a break. We'll cover that and more today on Indie Thinker. One of the great ways to curb inflation and to fight back against the recession that is definitely coming our way, if not already here, is to create new wealth for you and your family. And you can do that by starting a new business. But if I were you, I wouldn't jump into starting a new business without the expertise that you need to take care of things like staffing, payroll, accounting, and so much more. But that's why our friends over at Anchor are there to help you put legs underneath your vision. But to see everything that they can do for you, you, you need to go to ancur.biz because Anchor can truly help you develop strategies and take your business to the next level or help you get your business off the ground. But again, you need to go to anchor.biz to see how they can help. But when you do so, let them know that IndieThinker sent you. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Now, G.K. Chesterton said the madness of tomorrow is not in Moscow, but in Manhattan. And he said this a long time ago. So you can imagine it's okay that he's maybe only half right here, that it wasn't in Moscow, but it was actually much closer to home. It wasn't in Manhattan, but it is in L.A., the home of woke Hollywood secularism. And so now you can be chastised on a regular basis by our Hollywood elitists who take their private planes to places like Davos and tell us how we are part of the problem while they do very little to solve it themselves. Step up and take action. Last year, I spoke to Anthony Hopkins. And he said, actors are stupid. It brings up an important reality that I face continually as a podcaster when I think about the audiences that I'm trying to reach. So I'm forced with a decision that I recently discussed with Charlie Kirk. Should we be about winning the convert, the people that are in Hollywood or the people who are secularists who don't really agree with us? Should we be interested in persuading them? Or should we preach to the choir? And how much should we do of each of those things? And so I thought the conversation was pretty interesting. I'll link it down below so that you can actually see. But um, I, I do realize that there is an issue with trying to consistently win the convert. There's just some ways in which that's never going to happen. And we need to be honest about that. So I do find myself very often preaching to the choir on my channel while also trying to be mindful of those who don't agree with me and trying to make logically consistent and coherent arguments as though we actually care about that as a society still. That I identify as non-binary. But nonetheless, I do try to keep an eye on the non-believer. But I've also realized that if I'm going to preach to the choir, I have 
an issue. Very often, those people who are kind of my niche audience, because I'm a cultural apologist and a Christian podcaster, I'm speaking predominantly to Christians, but by and large, there are two groups of Christians that I run into the most, and these are intolerant Christians. These are the ones who hate everything, and they don't even know their own faith, and so they're captivated by emotional arguments rather than rational arguments. Now, that group of people you might suspect is very large, but in my experience after 22 years of ministry, intolerant Christians are pretty are pretty minute as far as the overall uh, makeup of Christians. In fact, the vast majority of Christians fall into another category. They are tolerant Christians. And these are Christians who tolerate everything and stand for nothing. They say, oh, don't worry about that. Don't make a big deal about that. Why all the outrage? Why are we only doing things for clicks? And in the process, they've forgotten that Christians are actually supposed to be for things, but also supposed to be against things, and that it is somewhat their responsibility how culture is situated and the the health of a culture. So these people don't suffer from emotional arguments. They simply suffer, suffer from, from apathy. The cure for both the intolerant Christian who is captivated by emotion and the tolerant Christian who is totally obsessed with apathy is critical thinking, because if you can convince the intolerant Christian to think, they can not just have emotional arguments, but they can have effective arguments. And if you can convince the apathetic Christian to critically think, then they will wake up from their stupor and realize that there are some things that we are responsible for in the culture, and we must fight against those things. And this is where I bring you to Matt Walsh's epic rant about nice conservatives, because I believe, obviously, that there's some overlap for Christians as we think about our responsibility in culture and to fight the culture wars. So here's what he had to say. For those who castrate children and attack the very concept of truth and erode the foundations of human civilization, my goal is to defeat and humiliate and demoralize them. Okay, I want to destroy everything they stand for. The other side is not interested in compromise. They want nothing less than your unconditional surrender. We have to meet them with that same energy or we will lose or continue losing. And by the way, this is also a good strategy because it rallies people to our side. It emboldens the troops. It lets people know that it's okay to speak up and to speak truthfully. You know, it's often said that, um, that you shouldn't preach to the choir. That's basically what they were saying at the, the, the end of that clip there. Just pandering. He's pandering to his own audience. He's, 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 this is a message that's meant for his own audience. Well, God forbid. God forbid I speak to my own audience on my podcast. No. Preaching to the choir is a good thing. We need to do more of it. Because if the choir is demoralized and scared and cowering in silence, then you damn well better preach to them. What kind of congregation can you hope to have when even the choir is too afraid to sing? And our choir, those who agree with us, the many millions of them, have been cowed into submission. They are nervous. They are timid, like you. And then you come along and say that we should ignore them and instead tailor our message for a group that hates us and will hate us no matter what we say or do? This is not just morally wrong. It's also terrible strategy. Okay? It is a dumb strategy. In fact, it's exactly what the churches have done for decades. And it's why most of them are dying. 
They water down their preaching to appeal to the crowd, a crowd that isn't interested in the message, no matter how softly it's peddled. And while at best, uh, because they did that, they, they, they bore to death and at worst actively alienate the very people who are actually sitting in the pews. So that's what the churches do. The people sitting in the pews who come to hear it, and then they give their preaching, which is designed to appeal to people who are outside the building and not even sitting there. But the people that are outside the building, they don't come in to hear any more of it. Instead, the people that were actually sitting there get up and leave. Conservatism has made the same mistake. So as far as I can tell, Matt's assessment of what's been going on in church and its kind of overlap into the conservative movement is absolutely 100% true. For the longest time, the seeker movement has been interested in trying to pander to a group of people who by and large hate their values when they should have been developing strategic and meaningful arguments for the faith in equipping their body, those who believe what they what they preach, equipping those people to go out into the world and to share that. And in the process, we've lost the culture war by and large, and we've alienated our base because we haven't been preaching to the choir so much. Now, all I can tell you is that the cure for this in my mind, again, is critical thinking. So here's some things that you need to think about based upon, I think, what Matt just shared. What are we fighting for? But we have to remind ourselves of this very often or else we will start to under or think about the culture wars as irrelevant. But hopefully it helps you to hear the following. That since Roe v. Wade, 60 million babies have been aborted in our nation and about a million babies each and every year are killed in the abortion industry. Now, if you think that's okay, let me just remind you that we have killed more babies in America than we have, than Hitler ever thought about putting uh, Jews in, in gas chambers. So uh, for those of us who believe that the Holocaust is an incredible tragedy, maybe we should look a little bit closer to home and realize that we have an obligation to stand up for kids who desperately need our help. But speaking of kids who desperately need our help, the trans stats in America are just totally off the chart. Now, I want to show you this from a secular and left-leaning news site, Reuters, as they show what is going on in the trans community in America alone. So as you can see on the screen, there's a, a chart of people who have been identified with gender dysphoria. Now, I want you to look at 2017. There were 15,000 people in the year 2017 who were identified and diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Now, as of 2021, there were 42,167 kids. Now, these are kids ages 16 to 17 who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. What accounts for the major uptick in that? Well, uh, look at 2020 when uh, COVID lockdowns took place, 24,000. That, so that number basically doubled from 2020 to 2021 among kids who are 6 to 17 years old. And then uh, let's look at kids who are actually going the next step into gender, uh, supposed gender-affirming care. In 2017, there were 633 uh, kids, 6 to 17, who were on puberty blockers. Now there are 1,390 children who are on puberty blockers. Uh, there are, in 2017, 1,905 kids that were on hormone therapy, and now there are 4,231. And then finally, the most uh, tragic of all, is in 2021, there were 282 top surgeries for 
for children, again, aged 13 to 17. So, so much for the idea that there are no top surgeries, no gender-affirming care happening in minors. You know, we're hearing that a lot from the left these days. But of course, we just saw that over 200 kids were subject to the radical trans ideology and it cost them their breasts. And that's not even those who went uh, underwent uh, bottom surgery. Uh, to 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 have a phallioplasty or um, or or something else. So needless to say, uh, there's an there's an epidemic right in front of our eyes that's impacting our children that demands that we pay attention. Now I want to be really clear. As a Christian, I'm not just merely interested in the degradation of Western civilization and the destruction of Western civilization. That's nothing nothing more than a trivia question. I am way more interested in the eternal souls of people that are right in front of us. So what are we fighting for? We're fighting for the souls, the hearts, and the minds of kids and adults who desperately need our help, who desperately need a voice of reason in the midst of incredible darkness. Now, two, who is your enemy? Well, hopefully I just illustrated that by and large for you, that not only are we here to protect kids, the born and the unborn, uh, while also uh, protecting uh, adults, but we are also supposed to be against those who want to scream, my body, my choice, and who want to scream, say my pronouns. So when we look at the enemy, clearly we have to understand that we may not like the idea of considering a person who is gravely misled um, an enemy. But, but, but we must realize that, that based upon the stats that I just showed you, that our enemy are, are those people who are actively impacting the next generation with an ideology that is incredibly damaging to them in a physical and an emotional way. Now, let me just say, when we talk about who is our enemy, we get this wrong all the time. We think people like Matt Walsh are our enemy, and we spend our time fighting against people like Matt Walsh. You don't have to like the people you're fighting with. You just have to make sure you're fighting the right enemy. This is true of war. You don't always like the person that's standing next to you on your side, but hopefully we can clearly understand what we're fighting against. Now, that does bring uh, me to the third point, which is what weapons do we use to fight? I think we have to realize when we look at Matt's comments that not everybody is going to fight the way that we think they should. And niceness is good, if possible, but you should be more concerned with being persuasive than being nice. We've got to get back to this. We have to have room for people like the, the Crowders of the world and the Matt Walshes of the world and realize that the Jesus of the, of the New Testament is, is the same God of the Old Testament according to Christian views, unless you're a Marcionist like uh, some other people over in Utah, that, that we believe the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and he hasn't changed and that we all ultimately need to realize that Jesus himself, as much as he talked about love, was also concerned with the truth and was willing to to call names and willing to fight back and willing to call what was demonic demonic and so we need to to understand that that there is an enemy before us and we must fight and we can't be too too nitpicky when it's as dire as as it is in the present and then finally we need to consider this do we really want to win because as i mentioned before more than western civilization is at stake People's soul is at stake. And we have to ask ourselves, do we really care about comfort? And, and do we really care about just taking care of what's ours? Knowing that ultimately, if we only take care of what's ours, we're not worrying about the world around us, which eventually our children will inherit. 
Our kids are going to inherit a world that we delivered to them either by our activity or our inactivity. So I think, hopefully, I've illustrated that winning is more important than ever and that we have to be willing to make a decision that winning matters. Now, I know there are pastors out there who want to say we're not in it to win it, but when we're talking about 60 million babies, when we're talking about thousands of kids who are falling victim and prey to gender-affirming care that can never be undone, I think we have to understand that there are some issues where we can be okay losing on, and maybe those are certain policy prescriptions on things that ultimately deal with tax laws, but when it comes to the actual health and well-being of people in our society, we have to be committed to win, and that's why I think you should know about our top stories today. So just recently, a panel of, uh, shall we say, women came together to talk about feminism on a, uh, a Vice show. And I wanted to just give you a little bit of the introduction for this show to show you how that conversation went. Barriers today. So we can, we can pick what no we want to pick. Who doesn't have barriers? Women doesn't, don't have barriers? Um, women, yeah. What, what's we stopping you? We have no you? barriers. You can do whatever you want. Uh, I can you? or you can? What's stopping you? Should we mark this bad boy at all? Oh my goodness. Oh, here we go. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm Liz Landers, I'm Vice News' chief political correspondent, and we are here today to talk about some of the biggest issues dividing women across the country. In other words, we're here to talk about feminism. First, I just want to say we know we can't represent everybody's views, but we did try our best to bring together a diverse group of women today. In today's polarized world, is feminism dead? I saw your hand. I think that depends on the definition of feminism. <laughs> I strongly think that feminism is more of an action than an identity. I would say it's uplifting all women, in which case it's very alive. At the same time, um, if we do follow that definition, feminism has splintered off into so many different areas that you can look at um, people like Sheryl Sandberg who say you should just get another nanny if you feel oppressed. Now, did you notice anything interesting about that panel there? I'll give you just a moment to kind of think about it, but don't don't strain too hard. What's it gonna be? Specifically, I'm I'm speaking about the first individual that came to to speak on the issue of feminism in that panel full of women. I'll take the box. If you guessed that that person is a dude, you'd be 100% correct. Stupid. Yes, this vice panel is so diverse, so inclusive of women that it also includes a man. You're so stupid! And, and by the way, I just love this guy up here speaking down to all of these feminists in the crowd about feminism and really taking charge as a man should when he's in this kind of setting. When a man comes into a room full of women, he should definitely be the first to speak and he should shut down all these other women and tell them exactly what they should think about feminism. So well done, dude. So I talked about on the show this past Tuesday about the risk of unleashing um, sexual predators and, and people who have gender dysphoria on unsuspecting women when I was talking about Leah Thomas and the incident with Riley Gaines in the locker room for the first time seeing Leah Thomas. But but you should know that the 
the the sexual deviants that in in the trans community who really do suffer from mental illness like uh, autogynephilia and gender dysphoria are 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 a real problem for women now. I'm happy to talk about the attack on masculinity, and I've talked about it before, at the risk of the trolls in the audience out there to say, well, if real men are real men, is there really an attack on masculinity? Well, it's very clear, based upon the statistics, that there are some fake men out there, some beta males, who are falling victim to the attack on masculinity. While it may not affect the alphas out there, it is affecting other men. But I'm also wanted to be fair, and I want to talk about the attack on femininity, which is on full display in this in this vice interview but I, but I want to extend this further and show you that there's a real risk of men invading women's spaces and you'll see that in this clip here so how many people so far have been transferred to uh, this female prison approximately 40 and how many people have gone from the female to the male prison zero and how many more are they there are 287 pending applications to go from the male prison to female prison mm-hmm. 33.8 percent of that 287 are registered sex offenders meaning this is not their first offense or a sex crime so you think some of these people are doing this on purpose mm-hmm. come to the female prison Yes, with bad intentions. Do you think this number will grow over the next few years as more people find out that they can have this option Mm -hmm. to go into the female prison? Absolutely. There are very few reasons why someone wouldn't want to take advantage of that. To be forcefully housed with a serial rapist is extremely callous and abusive. What it's done is provided the same privileges, the same opportunities to predator and victim. So no one is safe, just made the victim pool bigger. California, the great state of California, the Socialist Republic of California wants to unleash men on a whole bunch of women in the penal system. Now, when I'm saying the penal system, I'm not talking about what that guy in the Vice interview had removed. I'm talking about the prison system. So there are over 200 prisoners right now who are men ready to go into female prisons, and 97 of those men are sexual predators. Now, this is just insane that California is thinking about allowing this kind of thing to happen. And we're already hearing just the beginnings, just the the birth pains of men who are now attacking women in these prisons because they've said they were they were trans. But I'm going to focus on something here. And it's not just the narcissism of those who wish to be affirmed and not care about women's well-being in the process, because those in the trans community who are after that kind of affirmation, it's truly it's truly bad. But there is a greater narcissism. There is a virtue signaling narcissism that is way worse. And that's the people in places of policy uh, prescription, in places of, of power, who want to merely virtue signal how woke they are and want to get pats on the back and accolades and are willing to put women at risk so that they can feel virtuous. So, by the way, there's a special place in hell, not just for those who want to intrude on women's spaces, but also for those people who want to enable those guys to do that. And that's why I want to bring up this next story, because the CEO of Marriott is saying he's had enough of uh, specifically an issue that uh, impacts women, but is also something that goes beyond just women. But he's had enough of women being violated, and he's going to do something about it. So just recently in a Yahoo Finance article, it says... Human trafficking is a huge problem for hotels. Here's what we're doing about it. And again, this is uh, from from the CEO of Marriott. But uh, apparently, by 2025, all Marriott hotels 
Um, that's 8,200 locations in 138 countries worldwide will start undergoing training. And other hotels also, other hotel chains have been also jumping on the bandwagon and some 800,000 employees have joined this training. And this is training that is engineered to help sales associates identify people who might be victims of sex trafficking. Now, that this probably makes sense, but the reason the hotel industry is interested in this is that the hotel industry are prime vectors where these women will be brought in by these men who have enslaved these women and then be forced to go to rooms that have been prearranged by these guys, these pimps, and then uh, prearranged to meet somebody against these women's will. Now, I, th I think this is so fascinating that Marriott is jumping on the the important issue of sex trafficking when the, the the media is so quiet about this thing. But before we jump into that, I want you to hear what Marriott is up to. And the article continues and it says this, as travel demand continues to surge, Marriott International is spearheading a movement to address one of the biggest social issues in the hotel industry. And by the way, biggest social issues in the world right now. And it says, quote, human trafficking is a scourge on humanity, and unfortunately, a lot of it happens using hotels as an environment. Marriott International President and CEO Anthony Capuano told Yahoo Finance Live. So several years ago, we developed an intense training program for our associates. Initially introduced in 2016, the hotel chain's human trafficking awareness program trains employees on how to identify potential signs of human trafficking, monitor situations, and act or report on them while providing aid to victims. Now, because the media is so silent about this issue and you're not familiar with the numbers, I looked up some statistics from the Department of State and I wanted to share them with you here. So at any point in time, there's more than 27 million people placed in forced labor in the United States. And among them, 6.3 million are forced into sex trafficking. 6.3 million. Now, of those who are forced into sex trafficking, one in four of these victims are statistically children. And according to the Department of Justice, the average age of entry for a child into sex trafficking is usually between the ages of 12 and 14. Now, I'll be fair here and just say that conservatives and Democrats alike do not talk about this issue enough. I'm all for talking about transgenderism, and obviously we need to be talking about abortion. But if there is a, another evil that ranks up among these evils going on with child mutilation and the, uh, and the, of course, the destruction of children in the womb, it is the reality of sex trafficking that is happening so vilely in our nation. Conservatives don't speak about it enough. Democrats almost speak about it not at all. Democrats are the worst. In fact, California is by far the highest state for sex trafficking. Now, I have a question for you at the end of the day. The crowd who says, my body, my choice, should we really believe them? Should we really believe that they're not really after power and not just political games when they never talk about sex trafficking? And in fact, in places like California, they create laws so that young girls can be forced into sex trafficking. It's a bunch of sexual deviants. Um, and as far as race equity and race equality, really? Do you really care about race when there are kids of every age and every race all over the world being forced into sex trafficking? You want to talk about the 1619 project, but you don't want to talk about the 2023 project that you're spearheading to end slavery in the present. 
So, of course, these people are nothing more than hypocrites. And here's why. Because a motivating principle on the left is not morality. It's certainly not reality. A motivating principle on the left is power. So don't look for logical consistency from a bunch of hypocrites who really only care about putting power in their hands, either because they are kind of evil Bond villains or because they're just so spiritually and mentally bankrupt that they think they are the savior because they've replaced God with themselves. And they can't realize that actually they're part of the problem, which is one of the beautiful benefits of of Christianity when it is functioning the way it should be, which is an understanding that, man, we desperately need a savior and it's not me. You know, we say death and taxes. Like there's a, there's another lesson that you can add to that whole, to that whole paradigm of two things are certain, death and taxes. Well, there's another thing that's certain. There is a God and you're not him. Because when we're on the throne, this is the kind of stuff that we avoid while we you know, exalt feminism and bring a man to speak to a bunch of women and belittle them about feminism. You know, this is the kind of hypocrisy that you can expect when when man is on the throne and not God, which is why I think it's a troubling thing when a society is bent upon ridiculing and ostracizing religious conversation in the public square and pretending as though Christians are the real threat in society rather than those people who do not care about reality at all, which is why I wanted to bring up this final story. Barry Weiss is a former New York Times writer who broke away when she realized free thought was not allowed on the platform, especially if you want to talk about Israel and defend it. And so she started something called the Free Press, among other things. And just recently, one of her writers came out with a serial podcast about J.K. Rowling and her success with the Harry Potter series and the controversy that has surrounded the book. And of course, the podcast author just couldn't help herself. She had to expose those judgmental and intolerant Christians for speaking out against the book for its depictions of witchcraft and possession and other things. So here's what that clip sounded like on this new series called J- the, the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. I mean, what is wrong? That why, why do I have to be so ashamed? I mean, why can't I just say the truth? I'm gay. Ellen DeGeneres comes out on network television. Rent is the biggest musical on Broadway. Will and Grace becomes a primetime hit. And President Clinton issues a declaration naming June Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Modernity is bursting out all over. And the biggest problem we've got is the primitive age-old fear and hatred and dehumanization of the other people who aren't like us. After several cities in Colorado passed local laws protecting gays from discrimination, state voters in 1992 passed Constitutional Amendment 2, wiping those laws off the books and forbidding legal protection for homosexuals. But, of course, things weren't really so unified, or as rosy as some remember. It is not something that American society should condone and affirm in front of our children or in front of our society in general. After Ellen came out on TV, there was a backlash where people tried to get her show canceled. And ultimately, it led ABC to put a parental advisory trigger warning at the start of each episode. There was a movement of people who believed passionately that there was a dangerous progressive agenda forcing gay rights on the country. We need to stop the 
homosexual agenda, which is going to take over our town, our schools, everything, if we don't put a stop to it. So you might be able to tell the whole point that the podcaster here is trying to make is that Christians are the worst and the culture wars are way overblown and we need to just take a chill pill. Uh, now, as far as Christians being the worst, let me just kind of address that. I'm not totally in disagreement with you. Sometimes they can be. I think the Harry Potter thing was way overblown and it's clever fiction, nothing more. There's going to be those who disagree with me, but that's fine. But we also need to point out that Christians were not all in the 90s and in the early 2000s, not just fighting against Harry Potter books. They were taking more substantive stands. Beyond that, the removal of prayer in schools was one of the things that we heard about a lot in the 90s. And uh, we were also interested in kind of, you know, marriage and left-wing gender ideology at that point in time because, you know, teen pregnancies were actually on the rise. So the, and the argument for gay marriage that took place in the 90s did lead to a breakdown of the family that led to a resurgence of race riots, gangbanger culture, and most importantly, the kind of arguments that are used today by the trans community. So when we were fighting in the 90s, that slippery slope and defending marriage, we were trying to do so for a very important reason. We were trying to do so because we felt like reality was on our side and actually marriage should be defined very clearly so that we understand what it actually is, so that we don't make room for child brides, marrying animals, or any kind of panoply of different marriages, including um, polygamy. Like if we're going to understand that marriage is something, let's, let's have a definition for it. That's not too much to ask, right? So when Christians were standing up for things, they weren't just really standing up for their own personal preferences. They were standing up for things that had principle. And today, the trans cult uses the same kind of arguments that we saw in the 90s by those who wanted to defend gay marriage. And now we have a cult of people who are bent on mutilating and grooming children. And you say, read, that's libel. Really? Check this out. So today was our first day back from spring break. And I told all my students that my pronouns are they, them, and that my honorific is mix. A few of my students had some questions and we were able to talk about those. Um, but I wanted to tell you about two of my students that just made my heart sing and made me feel so validated. Uh, one of them she put in the chat, ah, I'm so proud of you. And then one of my other students, maybe like half an hour after we had talked about that, had a question and put in the chat, mix, da 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 here's my question. Um, and it was just so validating to see mix pop up on the screen instead of miss. And I just, it made my day. I mean, look at those crazy eyes. And, and, and the whole purpose of this thing is to try to show how kids are affirming this adult. Kids don't validate adults, weirdo. That's called abuse. So you see, when Christians were standing up for something, they were trying to defend what they thought was right. They were trying to defend an institution that had been around for thousands of years called the family. When the left wing stands up for things, they typically only stand up for their, for their own personal gratification. Do you see the difference there and why that can actually lead to some very damaging repercussions? The main point here is trans people, not Christians, were the ones who were burning books in the first place and hurling insults and death threats at J.K. Rowling and trying to get her canceled. At least when Christians were standing up, they were doing so on principle typically using reason and logic. And so a pastor errantly wanted to kind of 
defame J.K. Rowling in the process of her making her books and just trying to write something that she felt was innocent. Okay, so what? At least their heart was in the right place, and they weren't doing things merely for personal gratification. They were doing something to defend others. But when the left stands up, they do so very often only for their own personal gain. I actually miss the days of the bleeding heart liberals who wanted to save the trees and save the whales and were just a little misled because they only had a bleeding heart. Today's left is so ideologically Marxist, they will stop at destroying nothing. And let's go to the second thing, that the culture wars are just overblown. Take a chill pill. Um, There are casualties for not fighting the culture war, which kind of brings us to the end of our segment today. Because... The, the consequences of godlessness and secularism are way more damaging than you might think. Now, the podcaster in this episode uh, that I'm about to show you uh, on this J.K. Rowling series tries to do their best to undermine that there actually is damaging repercussions if we do not engage in the culture war. And the biggest one is one that I think is rightfully um, identified, and that is the Columbine shooting. Because again, she's trying to alienate those Christians who were standing up for the culture war in the 90s and trying to equate them to people today who are standing up for the culture war and saying, shame on you. Now, the reason that they, uh, that many Christians said that we should fight the culture wars is see what happened at Columbine. Now, our deft um, journalist here in this, in this podcast series is going to show us why she thinks that is totally flawed. So here's here talking about Columbine and why it really had nothing to do with godless secularism. Churches across America were told that some students at Columbine had specifically been targeted for their faith. The killers allegedly walked up to these students, asked if they were Christians, and when the answer was yes, they executed them. When that young man asked Cassie if she believed in God, she boldly said yes. One of these stories turned into the best-selling book, She Said Yes. We looked at each other and we said, would I have done that? I, I might have begged for my life. And she didn't. She may have been 17, but she's probably a better woman than I will ever be. Had you been the only one? Interviews with the victim's parents were passed around churches and youth groups. This confirms and justifies the, the paranoia that we have, that we are under attack. Now, just like the broader media story surrounding Columbine, she said yes, and these stories of martyrs also turned out to be unfounded. Now, I just have to be really honest with you. I hate the kind of journalism that says unfounded and then never tells you why. If I could do anything through this podcast today, it would be to be very, very aware of people who are couching their ideology and terminology, but never defining it and never defending it. Because the next logical question would be, unfounded how? But of course, that's never talked about. But I can go ahead and tell you that I went and did some sourcing uh, in, in the media myself, and I didn't use a right-wing source for this. I went to Vox, which is fair to say a pretty far-left source. And according to Vox, and this was done in 2019 about this very thing, they said this, and as the public warning began to fade and the FBI conducted its investigation, it started to become clear that the story about Bernal, who is one of the girls, in particular, was probably falsely reported. 
It was likely another girl entirely, Val Schooner, who told Claybold, not Harris, that she believed in God before he shot her in the school library. Schur survived. Bernal was also in the library, though further from Claybold, and Harris did find her. But later, eyewitnesses stated that Harris found her cowering under a table, said peekaboo, and then shot her without Bernal uttering a word. So as you see, the, the podcaster tries to undermine what took place at Columbine. This girl that had the gun pointed at her, and uh, the person said, uh, the shooter said, do you believe in God? And then she said yes, and then he shot her. That didn't happen. Now, that's unfounded according to, uh, to this podcaster, but, uh, but according to Vox, it actually did happen. So at the very worst, these God-hating killers did exactly as we were told. It just didn't happen with that specific girl. And at best, the story happened exactly the way we think it did. So unfounded, sorry, don't think so. And the point is this. There are repercussions when Christianity and belief in God are attacked. There are repercussions when we refuse to fight bad ideas, and those casualties are on us. If we sit back and are more concerned with niceness than we are in actually engaging, and the future that you leave for your kids and the generations after them, it's partly up to you and up to me. So I pray that regardless of if it's nice to tell the truth or not, we engage in it with as much ferocity as we possibly can. And if you're on board with that, I thank you for commenting down below and telling me how you're doing it. And if not, I thank you for watching thus far. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And most importantly, go with God.